Thank you for singing. Um, it was beautiful. So I wanted to talk to you guys for a few minutes about uh, the borderlands. Um, I have been thinking for a long time about this idea, and um, it, it kind of grabbed hold of me and hasn't really let go. Um, and so I wrote up this this piece about it, and we'll see how this goes. Um, so near the end of uh, 2020, so ha you mentioned the Behold the Lamb of God concert. Have any of you guys seen us do the Behold the Lamb of God tour? Okay, a few of you have. So we travel around the country. We're This is our 24th year of the tour, um, and which is crazy that we're still doing it, many of which uh, w with a lot of the same band and uh, friends and musicians. So we've all kind of grown, grown together over the years and uh, experienced a lot of suffering and life and then every December we come back together and we stand on the stage and we tell together the story of the coming of Jesus into the world and it's been a great gift. So one of the guys on that tour is this guy named Gabe Scott uh, who told me that I could share this story uh, um, and so he uh, he and I moved to Nashville together uh, 26 years ago, and uh, I met him in Florida. We were both in college, and we just clicked immediately. So I've played music with this guy longer than any other human being in the world. Great guy. And uh, for about 10 years ago, he started talking about opening a restaurant and uh, because he'd, he plays hammered dulcimer. So if you've seen us do the show, he plays the hammered dulcimer and the dobro and the guitar and is a singer. He's just this incredibly talented dude who's toured with a bunch of people. And uh, anyway, he got way into food and uh, started making pies, uh, and he would like teach workshops on pie making, and uh, which is amazing. And then he he has he married a Texan, and his wife is from uh, the the Austin area, I think. But there are these Texas breakfast tacos that you can't really get outside of Texas. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And G Gabe was like, "Why is there not a breakfast taco place in Nashville?" And so he had the idea to open. So as you if you if you know anything about restaurants, it's really really difficult to open a restaurant. Like you gotta find money and partners and you know business model and the whole thing. And uh, he, uh, he made guacamole every day for a year to perfect the recipe. He made, he came up with the, the, uh, the tortilla recipe because the tortillas are very important. And he's gluten intolerant so he had to like, he made the tortillas and he would hold them in his mouth and then spit it out and then make it again. So, uh, hilarious stuff. So. He worked for all this. So every year I would see him on the Christmas tour and say, how's the restaurant going? And he would be like, well, I'm still working on it, trying to find partners. And finally he found the partners. And he uh, named it Ladybird Taco. It's, it's in Nashville. And it was this big deal when all of his friends were rooting for him. Like, man, I can't believe you're really going to do it. You're going to open a restaurant. And uh, it, that was in April, I think, of 2020. Anybody remember April of 2020? Not a great time to open a restaurant. Right. So the, by, by God's grace, he was like days away from opening officially when the lockdown and they shut down restaurants. So he was able to like pause and not completely go bankrupt. So he would pause the restaurant. You know, payroll wasn't an issue. So he just kind of held his breath and they made it and slowly opened. And the restaurant is thriving and they're franchising. There's like three of them in, in the country now. The reason I tell you that story uh, is that Gabe almost died. Uh, the stress that he went through uh, in the process of opening the restaurant was uh, triggered something in his body, and he ended up having, uh, I don't know the exact name for it, but it was a combination of meningitis and encephalitis attacked his brainstem. And, uh, and one day he realized he didn't remember things. He woke up and he couldn't remember his wife's name or his daughter's name, and uh, he didn't remember where he was or what he was doing, and they rushed him to the hospital turns out he almost died. This thing was attacking his body, and one of the side effects was he lost about 20 years of his memories. Uh, and so 
uh, as you can imagine, like he would remember you if he saw you, um, but he would remember like the vibe of you. <laughs> he was like, I know we're friends and I know I love you. Brandon told me the story that like when he walked in the room, he was like, I know I love you, but I have no idea why or uh, any of our stories. So once he finally kind of made it out of the hospital, it was heartbreaking, uh, but I was very fortunate to be one of the only people in Nashville whose friendship predated his the window of his memory loss. So when I saw Gabe the first time, he burst into tears and we hugged because we had these old shared memories, right? Uh, so one of the crazy things was he had to learn how to play his own songs again. So, uh, so on the Behold the Lamb of God, uh, Behold the Lamb of God record, we were like, is he going to be able to do the tour this year? And his wife was like, well, I put the guitar out and he's trying to remember how to play and remember his guitar parts. And so it turns out he was like, I think I relearned my parts. So I think I'm going to play the show with you guys. Uh, and there are occasional lapses of memory. Uh, so it was pretty scary. So December of 2020, the government basically allowed us, you know, the, the Ryman, I guess I should say, said that we could do the Nashville show at at half capacity, socially distanced. Um, I walked out on the stage and I was crying because I had missed so much um, standing on the stage and, and telling people about what Jesus has done and who he is. I didn't realize how much I missed it until I walked out there and started singing about it. Uh, but also, it was heavy because we're, I'm thinking constantly about Gabe standing over there playing, wondering, is he going to make it through this show, right? And uh, his wife was just off the side of the stage with her hands clasped, tears brimming in her eyes, praying for her husband while he was standing there in, this, in the light, trying to remember how to play these parts. So it was just this really heavy, poignant night, and uh, he made it. Gabe made it through the show. He played all his parts. We were so happy. We were hugging afterwards. It was this beautiful moment. And I asked his wife after the show, I was like, how did he do? And she was like, well, he said that there was about a minute on the stage where he looked up during one of his parts and realized that he had no idea where he was. He was standing on the stage, and he didn't understand what was happening or what he was doing, middle of the concert. And uh, he said that he looked up, and he saw me standing at the microphone, and he saw a bunch of his other friends. And uh, he, he was like, well, I'm surrounded by my best friends. And then he realized we we're singing these songs about Jesus, and we're singing praise, and we're in the Ryman Auditorium, which is the m my best place in the world to see a concert, uh, this sacred ground. And he was like, he genuinely thought, oh, this is heaven. And then, uh, yeah, so he was overcome with it. You know, the combination of the people he loved the most in the world, the place that was good and beautiful, and the king that, that we were all singing to uh, made him think that he had died and he was in heaven. Uh, and then he realized that our friend Andy Gullihorn, he wasn't on that song, so he wasn't on the stage. And he was like, wait a minute, I know Andy's going to be in heaven. <laughs> and then he saw some people wearing masks in the audience, and he was like, wait a minute, oh, COVID. Oh, COVID's not going to be in heaven. Uh, and so he finally, he slowly piece together where he was. Isn't that beautiful, though? So all that, I tell you all that to say is that uh, there's, a, there's a reason. Um, it's one of the finest descriptions of heaven that I've ever heard. Um, and then, you know, after 2021 rolled around, everything started opening up a bit. Uh, we all snapped back, you know, faster than ever. And uh, I feel like I'm still playing catch up, you know, uh, from, you know, that year of forced Sabbath almost. And I don't want to under like uh, state what a tragic thing you know that year was for so so many people it was a really difficult year for a lot of people but for a traveling musician being told you can't tour for a year was a great gift in its way and so um, anyway 
It was hard. But uh, I, uh, I believe that the world desperately needs to know who Jesus is. That's what came home to me when I stood on the stage that night. Um, I think a lot of people who have written off Christianity have written off a version of it that I wouldn't recognize. Uh, and to be clear, I, that's not all their fault. Um, I can only speak about the church in America, but we haven't always shown the world uh, a great picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, we had a show in Boston later that year, and I remember walking across Boston Common, which is kind of like Central Park uh, in Boston, uh, the big, beautiful co- ground. And Brandon, my buddy, I keep mentioning, Brandon's up there at the soundboard. Hey, Brandon, you're going to hate this, but that's Brandon. He's my dear friend and tour manager and drummer. Uh, but he was, we kind of split up. He was walking around the park on his own, and he saw a protest unfolding. And there were all these people with picket signs protesting something about the election or whatever and screaming about something. And then there were counter-protesters screaming at them, and some of them were Christians on both sides, and they were screaming at each other, and there were cops there and media. And it was just this heartbreaking picture of, of like where we are as a country in so many ways. And then Brandon said he kind of like, it depressed him, and he walked across to the other side of the, of the park, and he sees this group of people quietly handing out sandwiches to homeless people. And, uh, and it was like, oh, there it is. You know, they, they weren't holding protest signs. They were holding sandwiches. They were, uh, they were quietly loving, and they were on the borders of things. All the attention was on the media. But then there were these Christians over there on the borderlands quietly doing this beautiful work. Uh, there have always been Christians stalking the borderlands. Uh, Mr. Rogers, I, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers. Um, and I thought, think he was pretty great. Um, but he, w- he would talk about, somebody asked him, what do you do when your kids see a tragic thing on the news? And he said, tell them to look for the helpers. Have you heard that? Like when you're watching like 9-11 or whatever, he was like, don't just look at the tragedy, look at the people running into the fire. Um, there was this uh, Radio Lab, which is a podcast I like, a uh, science podcast. Uh, and they were doing an episode on altruism. And like why it exists, and the, and there's this thing called the Carnegie, the Andrew Carnegie Hero Fund, where they give an award to uh, people who have done selfless heroic acts. And so they were interviewing all these people who had won the award, and uh, and I remember there being you know a story about somebody who saw a bull attacking someone in a in a pasture next to the interstate, and this woman pulled her car over, jumped to the fence, and beat the bull off of the stranger and save their life. And they're like, what were you thinking? She was like, I have no idea. Uh, I just, something took me over and I jumped the fence and fought a bull uh, to save this total stranger. And there was another story about, they interviewed a guy who was in in a New York City subway and uh, someone had an epileptic seizure and fell onto the tracks while the train was coming. And this stranger jumped on top of the person and held them down while the train whizzed over their heads. Uh, and they were like, what were you thinking? And he was like, I have no idea. Have you ever met this person? I have no idea who they are, but I did it. There have always been people moving on the borderlands, stepping into the danger, quietly quietly serving. The world is brimming with people like this. Uh, the, I, the wonderful thing about the Carnegie Award, the guy was interviewing him, and he was like, okay, what's the actual criteria? And this is what the criteria is. The candidate for one of these awards must be a civilian, who voluntarily risks his or her life to an extraordinary degree while saving or attempting to save the life of another person. The rescuer must have no full measure of responsibility for the safety of the victim. And the interviewer was like, is it hard to find people, uh, enough people to award these th- things to every year? And the guy was like, oh no, we, get, we have hundreds of stories come in of people doing these things. Uh, I think that's incredible. When the world is breaking, there will always be healers stepping into the wound. Sometimes you have to look for them. The healers tend to walk 
in the borderlands, moving incognito, sowing seeds in the storm. Uh, the Rabbit Room is a ministry that I'm, uh, I founded 16 some odd years ago. Um, our mission, part of our mission is to keep our eyes peeled for the artists, the painters, the poets, the musicians who are stalking the borderlands, doing good work and trying to aim people's attention to that, right? Aim people's attention. When people say, I hate Christian music, I always want to say, well, you're just listening to the wrong Christian music. Uh, there's, there's wonderful music being made by Christians all over the place. You just might not hear it on the radio, right? Um, and same thing with books. I hear people gripe about Christian fiction, and I'm kind of like, well, if, if when I say Christian fiction or fiction by Christians, a lot of times people picture Amish romances, you know? Uh, no, no offense if you're a lover of Amish romances. Uh, it's fine. But there's also people like Wendell Berry, uh, Marilyn Robinson, uh, there, I mean, Victor Hugo. There are so many Christians who have written some of the most amazing works of fiction in the world. Uh, so there's no reason for the church to hang its head when it comes to the art that it has put into the world. Uh, and in, for that matter, when people talk about how bad Christian movies are, as if all mainstream movies are good, right? <laughs> movies are just kind of bad. It's a miracle when any movie is good, right? Uh, so we should celebrate that. And so that's part of the point of the rat room. Celebrate it when somebody gets it right or when the Holy Spirit seems to be moving in something. Draw attention to those good works that, and encourage the people who are doing that difficult work in the borderlands. So uh, uh, Mako Fujimura, Makoto Fujimura, I don't know if you guys know who that is. He's a pretty well-known painter who's uh, uh, also a believer, and he's written a lot of uh, good things about what it means to be a, a Christian um, who is an artist. And he has a book called Culture Care, which I commend to you. Uh, but he, uh, he kind of draws out this ancient Old English word um, in that book called, and the word is mirkstapa. And it's a word that shows up in Beowulf. Um, and it's, the word literally is translated to Mark Stepper. Mirkstapa uh, means Mark Stepper or border strider, uh, border walker. And it's, it's a word that's used kind of pejoratively to describe Grendel, the monster in Beowulf, as this kind of creature that stalks the borderlands. But there were, in ancient cultures, evidently, like this, there were a kind of uh, people who were called border walkers who moved between the villages, right? Moved between the cultures, communicated, gave news. You know, they brought news from the borderlands to each other. Uh, so let me read you what he said. In the tribal realities of earlier times, these were individuals who lived on the edges of their groups, going in and out of them, sometimes bringing back news to the tribe. Artists are instinctively uncomfortable in homogenous groups, and in border stalking, we have a role that both addresses the reality of fragmentation and offers a fitting means to help people, to appreciate the margins, to lower barriers to understanding and communication, and to start to diffuse the culture wars. Uh, it's a good thought. And one example that, that Mako Fujimura points out as, uh, in literature of a border walker is this guy named Aragorn. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Uh, I love Lord of the Rings, and I would talk about that the whole morning if I could. But uh, Aragorn, his nickname is Strider. And Tolkien was a Beowulf scholar, so he would have known this, right? So Aragorn kind of represents this idea of the border stalker. He's a human who was raised by elves. He didn't belong quite wholly to either culture, right? He uh, wandered between the borders of things. Um, and so uh, I, as an artist, I resonated a lot with this idea, and it's not just because I wish that I looked like Viggo Mortensen, um, but... 
Artists do feel like border stalkers. We feel sometimes out of place, like we're allergic to things that other people aren't allergic to culturally or aesthetically. It's like something will really bother me in a song, and my wife is just like, just enjoy the song, man. It's like, but did you hear the phrasing? It was terrible. They got it all wrong, whatever. Uh, artists, we feel like kind of we're the oddballs sometimes, right? Um, but what happens when you have a community of artists? What happens when you get a community of border stalkers together, right? Uh, I, I think that even among the border stalkers, there are people who live on the edges of those groups. And sometimes I think that it's being a Christian who is an artist. Uh, I know that when I have, uh, I sometimes end up um, doing like in the round uh, songwriter things in Nashville and where it's like they'll get four songwriters together and we'll all trade songs. And uh Anyway, we, uh, um, I often feel like I'm the most Christian-y of those guys. You know, there'll be these country songwriters and stuff. And I'm sitting there racking my brain trying to think, like, what is the coolest song that I have written that I can play in this situation that will connect to these people who aren't believers, you know? Because I want to I wanna woo them. I want to get their, like, let, I don't want to walk out and sing, our God is an awesome God, because they'll shut down, right? They won't listen to you. So how do you, how do you gently woo them with the gospel or with the truth? And so I'm sitting there racking my brain. So I feel this out-of-placeness, like I'm the weird one in the room, even though I'm surrounded by other songwriters. Uh, so um, art isn't always practical. It can look like an extraordinary waste of time to people sometimes, right? Uh, it doesn't ob- always yield obvious results. And when the church is under assault, uh, some people may say, what good is a poem or a painting? Of what real value is a song or a film that doesn't explicitly articulate some theological truth? So the tendency can be to jettison the arts for more quantifiable pursuits. The tough thing for me is that, uh, like I said, it's not always just the artists in the church who feel kind of out of place. It's artists among artist community. Christian artists among the artist community can feel out of place. Um, one example of that uh, out of placeness, um, and I won't, don't need to talk about this much, but when the Wing Feather Saga, uh, the book series, we were pitching it as a TV show, um, and so me and the producer Chris Wall, uh, we flew out to LA and we're, you know, had meetings with the Netflix and Amazon and these people to try to pitch this idea for an animated series, and so they were really nice people. We walked in this, con- just like you would imagine it in a movie. We walked into the conference room. A guy in a suit you know, with cool hair walks in. He's like, "What do you got, kid?" And everybody looks at me and says, well, Andrew, tell them about the Wingfeather Saga. And then there's a gulp, and I'm like, well, sir, there's these kids, and they're running from this bad guy named Nag. And it just, as soon as the thing was over, and he was like, well, thanks, we'll call you. And we walked out of the room, and I was like, can we go back and do that again, because I completely messed it up. Then we went to Amazon, and it was just kind of like, but you got the feeling that uh, when we were talking about the story, that they were interested in it, and uh, then they would probably go back to their offices and Google, who's the guy that wrote these books, Andrew Peterson, and the first video that comes up is, is he worthy? And, and you know, it's this feeling that, I don't, I'm not saying they didn't sign us because I was a Christian, but it did feel like, wow, culture, there, there's some pr- things that we want to put in our show that I'm not sure we align together with, right? Um, and how, how is this going to work? And then we turned to the Christian film industry and said, hey, Christian people with lots of money, we want to make a TV show. And then they said, well, when does Jesus show up in the Wingfeather Saga? Uh, and we're like, oh, oh no, it's a fantasy story. It's not, that's not this kind of story, but, but surely there's an Aslan character. You know, the kids are going to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it's like, oh, that's not how these kinds of stories work. You know, there's a, there's a quietness to them. Uh, as a friend of mine puts it, they're not overtly Christian, they're deeply Christian. Uh, and so 
Uh, so we're once again in the borderlands, right, between the Hollywood kind of way of doing things and then the Christian industry way of doing things. What, what do you do when you're in the borderlands? So I'm so intrigued by this feeling. So uh, I'm going to skip a little bit of stuff here uh, because you get my point. Um, even with an explicitly Christian body of songs about Jesus, I sometimes would feel uh, like I was moving on the borderlands. Uh, earlier this year, I was given a book from the 1960s called The Borderland by this guy named Roger Lloyd, who is an Anglican priest who happened to write some books. He was like a uh, contemporary of C.S. Lewis and, and some of those great writers. And it was a fascinating thing to stumble upon this borderland idea in an old book. And he was talking about how uh, how important it is that we have authors and artists who, who move on the borderlands between theology and art. Uh, he, uh, it's kind of a different twist on the uh, Mako Fujimura thing. He wrote this, the borderland is the place where the professional theologian and the theologically amateur artist who interprets his thought to a wider audience than he can ever hope to attract for himself meet and join hands. The point is, the borderland artist is the one who takes the, cares about theology and also cares about storytelling, right? Uh, artists need theology. We need theologians. We need people to, to look up at the stars and make constellations out of everything, right? Uh, and so th then we need artists to say, hey, you see that constellation? Let me paint you a picture and tell you a story about it so that you can remember. Uh, what, what Roger Lloyd argues is that the, the, uh, the artists are the interpreters of the theology to the wider audience who, is, who aren't going to read a, some big book by... Karl Barth or whatever, right? Uh, and sometimes the cool thing is the artist brings to that conversation something that the theologian hadn't thought of uh, in their own work, right? I've, that's happened to me before. I had some theo theologian was telling me uh, that he was listening to one of my songs uh, that he was like, yeah, you said something in that song that was like, oh, that's a way of thinking about this thing. And I was like, oh, well, that song is about this passage in the book that you wrote. You know, so sometimes you translate back to the writer an idea, some some facet of who the Lord is uh, that they wouldn't get otherwise. I love that idea. So um, anyway, the uh, one of the great vocations of the artist uh, is doing that arranging and storytelling of these good and beautiful truths. Speaking of the New Testament, uh, Roger Lloyd actually said in this book, he said the pens of writers are the consecrated, accepted instruments of the kingdom of God. <laughs> uh, we wouldn't have the story of Jesus without the pens of writers, right? Uh, it has come to us that way. Eugene Peterson also suggested that he believed the work of writers, poets, and artists is so important that maybe we should be ordained. Uh, it is a high calling. So anyway, uh, I want to, uh, to say that I'm talking about the borderland artist, the border stalker among border stalkers, this feeling of being alone, right? Um, we ought to go to church. Artists need to go to church. Andy Crouch, my friend, said that we need to go to church even when we're allergic to it, to be humbled into remembering that God can make himself known even through bad paintings, bad poems, bad hymns. By the way, I'll never understand why with the vault of incredible hymns and melodies the church has produced that we ever have to sing the bad ones. Why do we sing bad songs when we have so many good ones? I don't understand. There should be a committee. And I, I would like to be the chair of that committee, if you don't mind. But of course, that attitude that I just described is what needs to be pruned from me as I sit in church and realize that other people are sensing the Lord's presence in a song that I don't like. When I'm sitting there languishing because of a poorly written stanza and a forget forgettable melody, God does not need us. He doesn't need our songs to be awesome. 
Uh, he doesn't need our art to be stunningly good. His goodness is going to be made known whether or not we participate. This is tremendously good news. It means that he just might inhabit our work, even if our attitudes are bad, our motives are questionable, our execution lousy. We ought to go to church to remember that in the kingdom's economy, we have utter freedom to fail, and God's purposes will remain unthwarted. We need the help of pastors, theologians, and fellow believers to learn how high, deep, broad, and wide is the love of God in Christ Jesus. But theologians need artists, and I would argue that they may need artists, like I said, to translate back to them a nuanced expression of their own teaching. So just an example uh, of a few of those writers that I love. Dorothy Sayers, some of you guys may know she wrote murder mysteries and books of theology. Uh, Walter Wongren Jr. lived in Indiana, was an inner city pastor, teacher, storyteller. Uh, Madeline Langle wrote A Wrinkle in Time and Walking on Water, A Theology of Creativity. Uh, George MacDonald, Scottish writer who was a pastor for a while, a novelist and a theologian. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, an artist, a theologian, a novelist, a murder mystery writer. Marilyn Robinson, Frederick Beekner, Flannery O'Connor, Wendell Berry, all of whom have written about their faith in God while also spinning tales of great beauty. Um, Tolkien's theology was as rich and profound as Middle Earth. And of course, there's good old C.S. Lewis who rode the lion in the borderland between theology and myth. Man, I would have loved to have read a murder mystery by Tim Keller. Right? Uh, I would have, I still want to read N.T. Wright's epic fantasy, you know, or my friend Russell Moore's legal thriller. It would be a blast. I believe that learning the discipline of storytelling teaches you something about the mind of God that no book of theology ever could. Not only do I want to read Moore's thriller and Wright's myth, I would also love th to read the books of theology they wrote after they had gone for a swim in the river of story. Each one feeds the other. But I'll say it again, artists need the church. There's a danger in making too much of the arts, which is a step away from making too much of ourselves. The pendulum can swing too far until we begin to think of ourselves as better than or other than the common folk who are not artists. Um, so, in closing, uh, I've been talking about the borderlands in a few different ways. Um, there's the cultural borderland where the church often find itself moving, finds itself moving among the margins, unnoticed by the media, by the powers that be, giving sandwiches to homeless people on the edges of parks, um, quietly sowing seeds. There's the artistic borderland where most artists tend to live, sometimes speaking prophetically from the edges of things. And a subset of the artistic borderland is where the Christian artists can feel doubly out of place, oddballs among the artistic community and the church. And then there's that borderland between theology and literature and art where so many of our beloved authors roam. It's not always fun to roam the borders, and I confess I've been grumpy about this stuff before. I can get defensive when it comes to the arts and the church, wishing that the church at large was better at making a home for the arts. I get defensive when people say there's no good Christian music or Christian books, like I said. I can get frustrated when theologians say they have no time for novels. And I've wanted to correct artists who say they, know, they have no time for theology. In the West, where some version of Christianity has enjoyed being mainstream for a long time, it can be disorienting and even frightening to some people when the church finds herself in the minority and she's forced off the beaten path and into the borderlands. There's a homesickness that we carry with us in these borderlands. Uh, 
and many of us feel an ache to belong. But I want to suggest that the feeling of displacement or exile can be a great gift. The borderland, I've come to believe, is a good and beautiful place to be, and sometimes it's just what the doctor ordered. I've been on the lookout for a few years for uh, works of art that were produced in exile or displacement. James Taylor's song, Carolina in My Mind, one of my favorite songs, was written in England because he was homesick for Carolina. Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote one of his best poems, The Lime Tree Bower My Prison, because uh, he wanted to go on a hike with his friends, but he'd hurt his foot, and he had to watch them walk away, and he sat there imagining what they were seeing, and there was a potency to his imagination that was even better than if he had been there himself. George MacDonald wrote a lot of his books about Scotland and England in Italy <laughs> because he was living there because his daughter had tuberculosis and he, he needed to get to a different climate. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel's Homeward Bound was written in a Manchester railway station. The point is, art thrives in exile. It can be good for your theology to pursue art and vice versa. The church is alive and well when she is marginalized. I asked a friend what it was like being a Christian in New York City, and he said, it's been good for my faith to be in a place where there's no social advantage to being a Christian. My friends, the borderlands are good for us. Are you a border stalker? Do you sometimes feel homesick? Like part of you belongs here and part of you doesn't. Do you catch glimpses of community one day and then feel exiled and out of place the next? Do you feel called to a work that's hard to explain? Are you living in the borderlands of art and academia or science and faith or poetry and theology? If so, take heart. Because Christ, our great captain, was also a border stalker. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He always straddled the borders. He was both God and man who came to that which was his own and was rejected by them. He ate with those who were self-righteous and those who were self-loathing. He stood before rulers and he touched lepers. He was the temple itself, that great borderland between heaven and earth, time and eternity, flesh and spirit, holding all things together in his mighty grip. All the winds of heaven and the stuff of earth in one glorious man, who alone could ascend to the hill of the Lord only to die there. He who was sinless became sin. He is the living border stalker. And he says to those of us who find ourselves ill at ease in the world, citizens, as Paul said, of a kingdom not of this world, he says, welcome, make yourself at home. If you're in this room and you feel like an outcast, an oddball, a border stalker with no place to lay your head, you're in good company, the best company. Could it be that this homesickness, even in the church, is a great gift? Could it be that the restlessness keeps us from spiritual slumber? Could it be that we, like the children of Israel, are exiles in Babylon and that we're meant to make a home here for a while? If that's true, we need to heed the words of Jeremiah who delivered God's word to those who were in Babylon but not of it. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. But we join the psalmist who wrote, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And yet they did sing 
We know because they made a psalm out of it. So, uh, let us hang pictures of the kingdom on the walls of the world. We can participate with God in the building of the kingdom by stirring up that beautiful longing in others, by telling the truth beautifully, by acts of service and love. I usually think of the new creation as this distant thing, this thing that we have to wait for. It's beyond imagining, but sometimes I think it's closer than we realize. This world, after all, is stunningly beautiful. So imagine the beauty with none of the injustice, none of the destruction of creation and the violence we see here every day. It's hard to imagine anything more wonderful than a new Nashville or a new Kentucky, a new Ukraine, a new Jerusalem. But we do get glimpses. I think my friend Gabe got a glimpse of it that night on stage at the Ryman Auditorium, which is to say that sometimes the waves of the new creation lap up on the shores of this one. Sometimes we get a glimpse, right? And when that happens, if you're an artist, part of our calling is to tell about it, make it known, make known the deeds of the Lord. Uh, and so I'm going to close with this quick story about a moment where the waves of the new creation lapped up on the shores of this one. This summer, uh, I was walking across England with a friend of mine. Um, we've gone on a couple of these like long 60, 70 mile walks where you, it's just like you would imagine. It's the mo most hobbity thing you can imagine where we literally have like walking sticks. We have a backpack. We stop at an inn for, you know, lunch at a pub and then we stay at some whatever place, climbing over fences, walking past cows, the whole thing. Just an amazing experience. But we were walking uh, a pilgrimage uh, way called St. Cuthbert's Way. St. Cuthbert was like uh, kind of the, they call him the patron saint of, of northern England. So back in, I think it was the 700s, uh, he was a, a, a monk that lived in northern England on this island called Lindisfarne, which is one of the most beautiful words I know. Uh, and it's called Holy Island now, and there's the ruins of this monastery where for hundreds of years these Christians worked and served their community, uh, and eventually the Vikings came and, uh, and caused problems. I'm Swedish, so I feel kind of responsible for that, but uh, anyway, my friend was like, hey, you want to walk St. Cuthbert's Way? Let's go on this, this journey and kind of follow the footsteps of this, this uh, saint, and so we were Walking, I think it was 63 miles, and beautiful, but it was also a slog because of, there were some low mountains that we had to climb to get there. And uh, on the second to last day, uh, I crested a hill, and it took my breath away because I climbed this big hill, stood on a rock outcropping, and got my first glimpse of the North Atlantic. Uh, the sea was just off in the distance. You could see the horizon line and all these green hills, and cows grazing, the whole thing. It was just so beautiful. And then I, I gasped because just off the coast, I could see the island. A day's walk away, there was the holy island of Lindisfarne, our destination, where I knew we had a room reserved. I knew there was some little pub where we were going to have dinner, and it was waiting for us sometime tomorrow. Uh, and in order to get there, you have to wait till low tide and walk across about two miles of sand uh, and time your, your crossing perfectly so that you can get to the island in time. And I knew that was coming, but I hadn't seen it. And I got my first glimpse, and I stood there on the top of the hill, wind howling with a lump in my throat and tears brimming in my eyes because I'd, I'd finally gotten a glimpse of what we were walking toward, right? Uh, it was this profoundly uh, moving experience for me. So that night, I got back to my my 
the inn where we were staying, you know, we walked to it, and I got out my guidebook. Every night I would read the guidebook about the previous day's walk, and it said, today is the day that you're going to get your first glimpse of the sea. Today is the day when you're going to crest this hill and you're going to see the holy island off in the distance. And the ancient pilgrims had a word for this. The word was mons gaudium, which is Latin for the hill of joy. Today is the day you're going to crest the hill and you're going to get a glimpse of your destination. I believe that when Gabe stood on the stage and he didn't know where he was, that was his mons gaudium. That was his hill of joy. He wasn't there yet, but he got a glimpse of what was to come. If you are in this room and you're a poet or an artist or a believer at all, part of our job is to make known the deeds of the Lord among the nations. Uh, one of the deeds of the Lord is this promised new creation that is marching toward us steadily. And when we get those glimpses, we tell about it. Thank you. <laughs>